You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Sydney Foreman. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, June 15, 2020. Later in the program, WFHB Assistant News Director Sydney Foreman reports on the release of John Myers, scheduled for today, who was convicted of killing Jill Bierman in 2006. In the feature, Foreman talked to Jill's mother, Marilyn Bierman. Also coming up in the next half hour, I talk to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton in this week's segment of A Few Minutes with the Mayor. But first, your local headlines. Director of Economic and Sustainable Development Alex Crowley presented an ordinance recommending portions of the Bloomington Municipal Code to be temporarily suspended due to COVID-19. He presented this to the Bloomington City Sustainable Development Committee during their June 10th meeting. Crowley spoke about temporary signage changes. So on the easing of signage regulation uh, and permitting, uh, the goals are to help businesses communicate their safety protocols potential customers and visitors during the reopening, um, to remove barriers in the sign process during economically challenging times, and to allow for a smooth transition back to normal sign requirements when the adjustments expire. So what we're asking for uh, through September 30th, 2020, at this point, is to suspend fees for temporary sign permits, which cost $75 per temporary sign right now, to suspend fees for permanent sign permits, which costs, currently close, uh, cost $125, and um, simplify and streamline the application and permitting process for temporary sign permits, um, and relax certain restrictions on temporary signs and sandwich boards in the mixed-use downtown district. Crowley said the ordinance would help Bloomington through its reopening phase. He said suspended code would allow for safe pedestrian use of Kirkwood. What we're asking is a temporary closure of portions of Kirkwood Avenue to pedestrian traffic and to be able to expand seating in the public right-of-way. So literally what this would mean is uh, restaurants and stores would have the sidewalk in front of their, uh, uh, you know, their, their brick-and-mortar shops and the parking spots in front of them. They would self-regulate to know who's who had as much space, um, and we would essentially close the streets, and we would create the uh, the, the sidewalks within the tra- the now former traffic lanes of that of those closed streets. So you would maintain ADA accessible accessibility, but you would have an extension of the inside space through the sidewalk and onto the actual parking spaces of the um, of the closed blocks. Crowley said a Kirkwood closure trial would run from June 19th through the 21st. He said if the trial is a success, the project would continue through September 30th. City Attorney Mike Roker said all closures will remain ADA compliant. Crowley said outdoor additions cannot increase a business's capacity. Committee members unanimously recommended due pass to the council at a whole. Indiana University trustees unanimously approved a resolution to rename the Intramural Center after Bill Garrett. Garrett was the university's first black basketball player. 
Garrett was also the first black American to regularly start on a Big Ten conference team. He was the sole person of color in the Big Ten conference during all four years he played at IU, and he went on to play for the Harlem Globetrotters. The intramural center was formerly named after Ora Wildermuth, a former IU trustee and judge. IU trustees removed Wildermuth's name from the building in 2018 due to his racist views and comments, including his opposition to racial integration. There has been a call to rename other university sites and buildings, such as Jordan Hall, Jordan Avenue, and the Jordan River, due to David Starr Jordan's connections to the American eugenics movement. We reached out to Megan Chapman, author of the petition on change.org. More on the David Starr Jordan controversy later this week. The Monroe County Election Board opened provisional ballots during their June 12th meeting. Board members Hal Turner and Carolyn Vanderweel said all voters who were given a provisional ballot were given instruction. Okay, each person received instructions on how to correct the issue that they had on Election Day with their provisional ballot. At the time that they sign the affidavit and so forth, they're also given uh, a set of instructions on how to resolve the issue um, that they take home with them. The board approved three provisional ballots. John Myers, charged with the murder of Bloomington local Jill Bierman in 2000, is scheduled to be released from prison today, June 15th, while he awaits the results of his latest appeal. WFHB Assistant News Director Sidney Foreman spoke with Marilyn Bierman as she reported on the case. Everybody, the city, everybody was so cooperative and helpful. I mean, the city had buses taking people out into the county to actually search specific areas. And then I would see on TV, like I never went out searching because I was afraid that what if she comes home and nobody's here? Jill Bierman, 19 years old, logged off her computer at 9.32 a.m., according to court records, and grabbed her bicycle for a ride, as she had done many times before. However, later that day, she failed to call into work or to show up for her shift at noon. Later, she also missed a lunch date, which she had planned with her father and grandparents. She never returned home. This was Wednesday, May 31st, 2000. It was just the weirdest feeling. Um, this is Marilyn Bierman, Jill's mother. Eric, my ex-husband, called me and said, you know, Jill didn't show up for lunch at Lenny's. And then late, a, a little while later, he called again and he said, well, he had gone home and she wasn't there, but her, her bike was gone, her bike shoes were gone, Jill was gone, but all of her stuff was there, like her backpack, her purse, IDs and all that. That's really weird, you know, and then later on after I got home from work, it was getting dark and she wasn't home and, we, you know, we had already started calling friends and family and whoever we could think of. Um, nobody seemed to have known where she was or hadn't seen her that day, hadn't heard from her that day. And so finally we called the police and um, an officer came out and took the report and agreed that something was wrong. And even though she was 19, which is an adult, when he got back to the station to file his report, he called and said he was gonna go ahead and post her as a missing person. Police jumped on the case, as well as volunteers, to search for Jill. During this time, police received many leads, some witnesses saying a white van had been seen where Jill would have been on her bike. 
but most were dead ends or discredited. However, on Friday, June 2nd of 2000, Jill's bike was found on a county road northwest of Bloomington. The report that led the police to the bike stated that a trailer home near the location of the bike had all of their blinds shut, which had been seen as out of character for the owner. This trailer was the home of John Myers. This led to an interview by police with Myers and his parents, where they discovered Myers had access to a white van through work and had recently broken up with his girlfriend. However, no promising leads were found immediately after the discovery of her bike. On June 3rd of 2000, police suspended the search for Jill Bierman. But when they suspended the search, it was basically because there were so many people and they were spending all their time coordinating all of these volunteers and they weren't really able to work on the case. But her family and even Indiana University, where Jill had just finished her freshman year of college, would not let that end the search. According to an Star report, quote, Bierman's parents, university officials, and others offered a $25,000 reward for any information. The reward is later raised to $50,000, end quote. Marilyn Bierman recalls the reward being even higher than that. It's, it's hard to say about the reward fund. I mean, there was a lot of discussion about that. How much should it be? What would make a difference? What would encourage someone that hasn't come forward to come forward and say, I, I might know something? Um, and then over time, it was increased. I can't remember what the grand total was in the end. I know it was over 100000 at one point. Um, it may have been more than that even. I don't remember. Over the next two months, the FBI joins the search and John Myers begins to become a person of interest, but not an official suspect in Jill's disappearance. In an interview with police in August, John's brother Samuel brought up that his 12-gauge shotgun had gone missing. On November 10th of 2000, the Bierman story hits the Fox TV series Million Dollar Mysteries. I mean, every time we did anything like that, I felt like it was probably helpful or could be helpful at least. I didn't know if it would lead to anything or not. Um, but it could be helpful and so you do it. And it was always in conjunction with the investigators. Like the investigators would kind of give us talking points, you know, like these are the things we need to know. And so these are things that you might mention or, you know, there's certain things that would be good to say, like we need to bring Jill home or please help bring Jill home. The show prompted over 50 called in tips to the FBI. However, in 2002, the police received an unexpected confession from a woman named Wendy Owens. She confessed to herself and two of her friends hitting Jill Bierman on her bike with their truck, stabbing her, and throwing her into Salt Creek. Officials dammed the creek and searched for any evidence that would support this claim, but Owens later withdrew her confession. Later in March of 2002, Myers, who was in jail for unrelated circumstances, reported to an officer that he had found letters relating to the Bierman case on lunch trays he was washing. He then told police he wanted to help in the search for Jill. Records say, quote, Myers additionally compiled a list of places potentially providing clues to Bierman's location, end quote. Officials investigated these locations, but nothing was found. A year later, in March 2003, Jill's remains were found three years after her disappearance and discrediting Wendy Owens' confession. All along, the FBI agent especially had said, you know, if we only had a crime scene, we would know so much more. 
And I never understood that until we had a crime scene. Suddenly, there are a lot more things you know. Um, the forensic anthropology team from University of Indianapolis, it's almost like an archaeological dig when they do their investigation and they catalog everything they find. They dig through the dirt. Um, and Jill had a lot to say. Her remains were found by a hunter in a Morgan County field. Beside the body were also shotgun shells determined to most likely be from a 12-gauge shotgun. Court records said, quote, The cause of Bierman's death was ruled to be a contact shotgun wound to the back of the head, scattered skull fragments, and the presence of lead pellets in the variety of places, together with certain soil stains consistent with the body's decomposition, suggested that after being shot, Bierman's body had come to rest and had decomposed at the spot where it was found, end quote. A co-worker of John Myers reported to the police that Myers had mentioned he often hunted in the area where Jill was found. On March 13th of 2006, the Morgan County Grand Jury began an investigation in the case and found enough cause to charge Myers. In the next month, April 2006, Myers was arrested and indicted on a charge of murder by the Grand Jury. The trial began in October and lasted 16 days. The jury found Myers guilty, and the judge sentenced Myers to 65 years in prison. It, I was glad that he was sentenced to 65 years, but I mean, it really doesn't solve anything other than at least we, we have some kind of justice. There's never really closure, at least in my mind. You know, people talk about, oh, the Bermans need closure. Well, that would be a nice thing, but I don't think closure really happens. You just have to learn how to deal with it in whatever way you can. and having some justice at least helps. But that isn't where the story ends. Myers did not hesitate to begin appeal processes on the case. He went through many attempted appeals through Morgan County, the State of Appeals, and now through the Seventh Circuit. However, this last appeal was different. Myers filed a hebus corpus claiming his attorney, Patrick Baker, had failed him in trial. He stated that his defense team was careless and committed a number of errors such as not objecting to incorrect charges or facts during his trial. He claimed his counsel did not prepare a well-opening and closing statement for his case. U.S. District Court Judge James R. Sweeney of the Southern District of Indiana approved this appeal and vacated the murder conviction against Myers. In the ruling, Sweeney wrote that John Myers received ineffective counseling from attorney Baker at his trial. The decision meant that Myers could be released from custody unless the state decided to retry him within 120 days. Judge Sweeney then cited a disciplinary hearing to attorney Baker, and Baker admitted to failing him in court, saying he did in fact violate Myers' Sixth Amendment rights. Marilyn Bierman said this all came as a bit of a shock. I felt like Morgan County did everything they could to make it as fair of a trial as possible. And even last fall when this first came out that, that, that Judge Sweeney had approved this appeal, um, that appeal had been filed for so long, I mean months, maybe almost a year, I don't know, I can't remember. It had been filed a long, long time and I'd almost forgotten about it because I hadn't heard anything. So it, that caught me a little off guard. Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill filed on January 8th for a 60-day extension to the 120 days that the state had to decide on a retry before the release of Myers. According to an IDS report, quote, approval of the 60-day extension 
would give Hill time to file an appeal against the September 30th order, prolonging or preventing Myers' release or retrial, end quote. During the appeals process on April 7th, 2020, Myers requested to be released from prison due to the fact that a medication he was on weakened his immune system, making him more susceptible to COVID-19. Myers was granted this request on May 9th and will be released from prison on June 15th after a two-week quarantine until the court makes a decision on his appeal. He will be released on house arrest on the agreement that he will have no contact with the Bierman family, electronic monitoring, and compliance with CDC guidelines and social distancing. At this point, I reached out to Judge Sweeney, however, I did not get past the woman who answered his office phone number. She wished to remain anonymous and to not be recorded. She explained that if no appeal of the order is made, then Myers would stay out of prison unless the state brings new charges against him. The decision of the appeal is set to come from court within six to two months. At the end of everything, Marilyn Bierman just hopes for a sense of justice. I mean, I've been noticing a lot of people bringing up the old stories about the three who hit her with the truck and then dumped her in the creek, and then maybe he didn't really do it, but maybe he moved her body and all that stuff. People need to forget that part of the story because it was false. It was all false. Because I know a lot of people still think that's what happened, but it's not what happened. The thing that I really appreciated about Steve Soniga, the prosecutor, was he was also a really good teacher. And one of the things he did every day when he started was explain what circumstantial evidence is and why you might have that. And remind people that when a murder occurs, how many people are watching. And so unless somebody sees it happen, it's a circumstantial case. Well, if there's enough circumstantial evidence and it all points in the same direction, um, often plays into convictions. In the meantime, John Myers will be living on house arrest with his mother in Ellettsville, awaiting for the results of his appeal. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman. That was Sydney Foreman reporting on the recent release of John Myers. Now it's time for A Few Minutes with the Mayor, our weekly segment where Bloomington residents and WFHB staff pose questions to Mayor John Hamilton about local issues. We turn to Sydney Foreman for more. Community members posted questions on our social media via Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, posing questions to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton about current issues. Today, on A Few Minutes with the Mayor, John Hamilton answers these questions. Uh, the first thing I want to ask today is just could you speak about Monroe County's COVID-19 numbers and how are those looking? Well, the numbers that we can see, which are driven by hospitalizations and deaths and the infection rate, are good. They continue good, you know, relatively good. I think we're at 18 deaths, uh, so we're up some over the last month for sure. Uh, but the hospital hospitalizations are down, continue to be under 10, I believe. And we actually had some days when there were no ventilators being used. So those are all good indicators. Um I will say I'm really waiting to hear the results of the second round of prevalence testing where they, the state program tests random Hoosiers, uh, several thousand, to just try to find out what the baseline infection is. 
And that was about 2.8% last time they did it. And we should know in the next week or two what that baseline is, whether it's moving up or down. And that'll be real important to know. Do you, by any chance, know how the turnout was for that prevalence testing? Uh, I believe they tested about 6,000 people last time. They they randomly select people by mail and uh, ask them to agree to be tested. Uh, and they do it in a statistically valid way. So I think they'll be doing a number of thousands of people uh, across the state. I will note that Monroe County's prevalence was actually below 1% uh, at, the, at the time that that was a 2.8% statewide. So that, that was a really good indicator, and we'll want to see what it looks like this time. Um, and as we recently have opened up to stage four, um, what is that going to look like for the county specifically? Well, stage four, uh, the main differences are we see the opening up of playgrounds, uh, which you may have noticed around, and pools and some sports leagues are allowed to start their work. Um, and then bars are allowed to open bars and taverns, which were closed under stages one, two, and three. Uh, restaurants are allowed to go to 75% capacity and retail stores, I think even more, 100% capacity, I believe. So, I'm, you know, I'm still concerned about what's going to happen over the next six or eight weeks as um, tens of thousands of students likely return. Uh, but that's the main difference in stage four, those kinds of things. And with these students coming back and with things reopening, does the city have a plan in place in case of a resurgence? We do. We work uh, regularly every week connecting and talking with the county health department and health experts as well as IU. And all of us, uh, all of us agree that if the data start to go backwards, uh, we need to go backwards, if you will, to increase the restrictions. Um, uh, we don't want to do that, but we're all ready to do that. And we've kind of like we know this drill. We've done this before. If we need to do the restrictions, we can we can use the uh, protocols that we had before in stages one, two, and three. Um, the next question is, in response to the protest, um, what do you think about defunding the Bloomington police? Well, I'm really proud of our community and the way people, thousands of people, have stood up to demand uh, justice, racial justice. I joined in the event and I agree with the importance of continuing to identify how do we protect and remedy against racial uh, injustice that's been part of our country's history from the beginning. Um, and I think it's appropriate to look at and everything in the budget and the police department. Uh, and I expect we'll be doing that as we do the 2021 budget. Um, We've done some things already that I can talk about if you want to, that to me suggest um, moving in a direction that I think is the right direction toward much more community policing. Uh, but I think it is absolutely right to keep looking at the priorities that we reflect in our budgets. Yeah, if you would like to speak about those points that you've changed, I would love to hear them. Sure. Uh, and some of this was before I became mayor, but our police department um, had about in 2014 put in place body cameras, uh, and that was pretty early for any police departments, and they've been in use since then, and we continue to use them both uh, on police officers' uh, uniforms as well as in uh, squad cars, uh, automatic 
uh, recordings. And I'll say the police were, I'm told, I wasn't mayor at the time, the police were somewhat skeptical of that at the beginning in 2014. They have since found that they're very helpful to have a record. Often, if there's a dispute about what happened or a controversy, we now have a record of it, and it's been very helpful to have. Since I became mayor, a couple things we've done. One, we, we already took the 21st Century Policing Report that was the Obama administration, one of the responses to the Ferguson, Missouri uh, crisis and what it represented, and went through all 80-plus recommendations of that in 2016, four years ago, and I asked the Public Safety Board, the Citizen Oversight Board, to review that with the police department, and they did so and have confirmed our compliance with all of those uh, recommendations, with the exception of one, which is the recommendation that police have and carry uh, non-lethal weapons of tasers, um, and we, we have not chosen to do that. And um, then also since I've been, we've added two new positions to the police department, which are non-badged officers, a neighborhood resource specialist and a social worker. We're one of the very few police departments in the state that has a full-time social worker, which we added uh, last year, and also uh, two new positions of neighborhood resource specialists uh, that are, all three of those are non-armed, uh, non-badged officers who respond uh, and help uh, supplement what the police department does. And then, of course, people are aware of the downtown resource officers. That was also created before I came in, which is kind of the, they're called the white shirts because they wear white shirts and their uniforms and they're focused on downtown uh, homeless issues and others. And they have a bunch of special training and duties. But look, I I think the question of how the police department ought to be funded and uh, how it ought to be, uh, how our public safety resources ought to be deployed is a constant and really good question to all, always to ask. You know, as a mayor, uh, I know my police chief as a community, when we see some of the incidents, uh, whether it's in Minneapolis or, or Louisville or Georgia, uh, you know, it breaks our hearts and it redoubles our efforts and commitments to assure that we have the training and the culture, which is as important as anything, the culture in our public safety officers and departments to protect and serve and be guardians. Um, and, you know, there's there can be cultures where there is really a conflict between the public and the public safety officers. And every time I swear in a police officer, I, I remind them, the more you know about our community, the better, and the more our community knows about you, the better. And I might just, if listeners are interested, uh, Tuesday night this week uh, at five o'clock, the Public Safety Board will be overseeing and, and uh, meeting with Chief Decoff, and the public is welcome to attend that and hear a lot more discussion about these issues. As well as there's a Thursday night at seven city council meeting that will focus on public safety as well. Thank you for mentioning those. Um, the city is to hold an information session about the seven line on June 18th. Uh, what is this project? I'm really excited about the seven line. Uh, that's the name given to what we hope will be a uh, east-west corridor, kind of like the B line, though not exactly, through 7th Street from the B line uh, heading east uh, right now to campus. That's what this immediate stage of the process is uh, in the project. Ultimately, though, through campus onto the east side all the way out to uh, 446. And um, it was one of the bicentennial projects that we funded at the end of 2018 with a, with a bond that was designed to be a gift to the future. And there are four major trails that were part of that. And the seven line is an attempt to create a really nice um, east-west link uh, for pedestrians and bicyclists with a with a discreet and separated trail uh, along the along the street 
to help uh, ease east-west traffic for bikes, bicyclists, and pedestrians. Great. So it's just going to be a pedestrian trail, or is it a bike? Well, it will. Trail? It will be. There's already sidewalks through most of that area, but this will be a a uh, physically separated bike trail that will adjust the street lineup uh, in along Seventh Street. Uh, so it'll it'll be serving both bicycles and pedestrians, and actually the bus too, which is a a big user of 7th Street. But we thought the 7 line was a good name, and on Thursday is kind of a first uh, open meeting to look at design options and get feedback from the public from their ideas about what might work best. You know, the B line has been such a spectacular success and so popular and so important in accelerating the use of that pedestrian and bike uh, special separated lane it's with people wanting to live along the b-line and commercial properties and others wanting to activate it of course we have the new switchyard park at the southern end of it so we're continuing to look for other trail opportunities that we can do similar things with now we don't have another big rail line that we can close at the time so the seventh street seven line is meant for that and then there's also a plan for an rca park trail to go west from roger street over toward twin lakes uh, there's a Griffey uh, circumnavigation trail meant to go around Griffey Lake. And then I'll just mention the Cascades Trail, uh, our oldest park, Cascades. We we temporarily closed the street for six months to let people try that trail out on the southern end. So I encourage people to try that out right now up at Cascades. Do you have a question for Mayor John Hamilton? Comment that question on this coming week's post for a few minutes with the mayor to have your question answered. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Sydney Foreman in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our features were produced by Sydney Foreman. Our engineer is Cade Young. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Our executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent local news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast, as well as all other WFHB news programming online at WFHB.org. You too can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at WFHB.org. Stay tuned for With Good Reason. Coming up next on WFHB.